This podcast is brought to you by the marketing team of DePaul University's Department of Finance. Hello, this is Stuff You Should Know About Finance, a podcast that uncovers and explains financial topics and related current or historical events into more understandable terms by our featured guests. I am your student host, Demita Menezes. I am a journalism major at DePaul University, and I don't really know much about finance. With the help of the marketing team at DePaul University's Department of Finance, this podcast brings together finance professors and industry professionals with finance students to break down real-world examples. If you want to gain financial literacy, such as myself, keep up with financial discussions or learn about finance courses at DePaul, tune into Stuff You Should Know About Finance. Stay updated with us by checking out our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn by searching DePaul Finance. Hello everyone and welcome to the second episode of Stuff You Should Know About Finance, a podcast that talks about financial topics with someone financy. I'm your host, Demita Menezes, joined today with fellow DePaul student Hugo Wang. Hey Hugo. Good morning. We also have with us finance professor James Valentine. Hello, professor. Hello. Professor Valentine is a top equity research analyst. He is also the author of the book, Best Practices for Equity Research Analysts and the founder of Analyst Solutions, a firm that helps analysts improve their stock picking. And in addition to teaching at DePaul, he oversees a center that explores the psychological aspects of investing. All right, Professor, for this episode, we will be discussing the stock market. So what is this stock and what is this market? Yeah, great question. It's a big question. So I'll try to be as uh, concise as I can. So uh, the stock markets around the world, they basically bring together those uh, individuals or companies that, are, that need capital, need cash. Uh, ultimately, because they're going to invest it in something, and w- it brings those that group together with the people who want to do the investing. So it could be you or me or our parents or our company, uh, because in the end, um, what you what you're going to need to see is if you want to have growth, like build a factory or build a hospital or build an office building, uh, you need money to do that, right? And so typically, those who are there building these facilities don't necessarily have the money sitting in a bank account. So what they will do is they'll go out to somebody who wants to invest and that investor will invest in that company and then that company will be able to build these things. That's the just a big picture overview. And so when you see the stock market, what the, in effect is happening is you have the companies that are issuing stock and they're therefore getting the funds and then the investors are buying the stock. And then what you see every day, like when you're watching uh, CNBC or uh, looking at the wallstreetjournal.com is you'll see the prices of that stock price in the secondary market, meaning that the companies aren't still getting that that uh, cash. It's now, I let's say I own Tesla or McDonald's and I want to sell it to you because I don't think that the prospects are as good, then you can buy it from me. So that's what's actually going on in the stock market when we see the, day, the day-to-day trading. And how is the profit made for a person who's investing in these companies? Yeah, so when you're, when you're in this, what called the secondary market here, namely that it's no longer the company. The company issues the stock initially, very often called an IPO, initial public offering. From that point forward, all the trading you see in the market is typically between either institutions or individuals. And so if we are, um, if I decide that, uh, let's say I own McDonald's and let's say the stock's at $200, um, if um, I think it's not going to go up anymore or I think worse yet it's going to go down, then I'll sell it. And some, meanwhile, someone else in the marketplace, they must think it's going to go up if they're going to buy it. So they're, they're in there buying the stock from me. And that's really what's going on day to day with all the trading in the stock market. Okay. 
So um, I took your class last quarter. Uh, I was very I'm fortunate. Sorry to hear that. Um, <laughs> I enjoyed it, and oh, I learned good, a lot good, about good. stock picking. But uh, just for those listeners who don't know what is stock picking, what do you teach in this class, and what do you want people to know that about stock picking? Yeah, great. So I think there's a there's a maybe a view that uh, stock picking is um, is kind of a guessing game, or that it's um, kind of like going to Vegas. It's gambling, and, and it's, it shouldn't be. Namely, if you do the research, you should be able to have a good educated view on whether or not you want to buy a stock. And so what we do in this class is we really focus on a concept called equity research, which, you know, because you were involved in the class. And I was an equity research analyst for uh, the first half of my career for about 14 years, mostly with Morgan Stanley. And what you do in this class is you, in effect, learn a lot of those principles of what we do in equity research. Namely, we learn about the industry, we learn about the company, and then we try to forecast the company's prospects. Because if a company has good prospects, then you, the stock probably will go up over time. And if the company has poor prospects, the stock will probably go down over time. And so really, it's a, it's a class to learn about uh, the, the prospects of the company and try to forecast the direction of the company's stock. So if I'm understanding this correctly, equity research is a way of like kind of predicting with data to predict the fall and rise of stocks? Yeah, exactly. And so so the term equity, just is the, the term stock, basically stocks are called equities. So okay. that's where the equity comes from. And the research is the idea. And then equity research analysts date all the way back to the early 1900s. I was in a, a library in Washington, uh, D.C. a few years ago, and I was able to find the equity research analyst reports on the railroads back in 1910. So um, they've been doing this for a long, long time. And what they basically do is they go out and they kind of kick the tires, if you will. They go and they look at the product, they go look at the prospects, they'll talk to customers, they'll, uh, they'll sometimes talk to suppliers, and they'll try to understand, for example, is Tesla really going to be a great company that ultimately continues to build electric cars and grow at mar- its market share, or is it just a short-term phenomena and the bigger car manufacturers, you know, Mercedes and Ford and so forth, are going to ultimately take over that uh, market? You know, it's kind of unknown, and that's what equity research analysts who were responsible for, let's say, the auto sector, they're responsible for trying to understand those dynamics ahead of everybody else so they can try to figure out whether the stock is going to go up or go down. And so you used to be a Southside equity research analyst at a very good firm, Morgan Stanley. And can you just first tell us what's the difference between South Side and Buy Side for people who don't know? Yeah, it's a great question. So I'll start with Buy Side, which is not the side I worked on. So Buy Side are the firms that have the assets that are investing. So for example, here in Chicago, we have Northern Trust. It's one of the real well-known, uh, globally recognized uh, investment firms. And so you or me or our parents can go out and buy a mutual fund that Northern Trust will manage. We could also, if depending on how much your net worth is, you could invest in a hedge fund. One of the largest hedge fund managers in the world is Citadel, which is also based here in Chicago. So companies like a Northern Trust or a Citadel, they have those assets and they're buying the assets. Uh, they're buying the services of the sell side and they're the, basically the asset managers. Uh, they're the buy side. The other side of the transactions are the sell side firms. And these are the firms like a Morgan Stanley, a Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, JP Morgan. They're the ones that have services to help these firms. And so they're selling their services. Uh, they also have a trading desk. And so sometimes people will say sell side because they're selling stock and so forth. But point is, that's another side of the business. And there's many aspects of doing equity research that are identical to both buy side and sell side, namely doing the industry analysis, the company analysis, trying to figure out is Tesla going to be a great company over the long term. Both types will do this because these sell side firms like the Morgan Stanley's and so forth, they will take that research and then sell it to the buy side and the buy side will use that. The only thing that's really different is that the buy side firms are actually making the decisions and investing money. So they're the ones pulling the trigger day in and day out, buying and selling the stocks, whereas the sell side firms, they're just selling their services. They're not actually, uh, the analyst is not actually in there buying and selling stocks. Are the people in Wall Street buy side, like the ones, you know, 
how we have in those movies, you know, in a cubicle or something like that, you know, calling and are they the buy side basically? It, it, it really, uh, probably would, to answer your question, it depends on the movie. So um, typically when you're seeing things, uh, most of the movies are kind of built around the sell side. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you ever saw The Big Short, it's about someone who's concerned about the subprime mortgage collapse. And he's at a buy side firm and oh, yeah. because he's actually investing in the stock. So if you actually see a, if you see a firm where the person sitting at the desk is making decisions and they're actually buying and selling securities, uh, they're probably buy side. If they're telling people to buy and sell stocks and making recommendations and that's all they're doing, then they're probably sell side. So what are the factors that kind of influence the research and data of a top equity research analyst? Yeah, I think, um, you know, as Hugo probably would attest, the, the biggest factor is that you need to be doing proprietary research. So before I came to DePaul, I started a company called Analyst Solutions. And what I did then, and I still do a little bit now, is I work with equity research analysts to try to improve their performance. And the problem I find, even with professionals who do this full time, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours a week, is that too often they're trying to make decisions. And I'll just keep using Tesla because that's mm -hmm. a, you know, everyone I think knows about Tesla. And it's kind of um, in the trend. Yeah, everyone's talking about it, right? Mm -hmm. So I think many analysts think that to understand Tesla, you need to do, um, you need to consume all the publicly available information, like listen to the company's conference call, read the news stories about Elon Musk, read the company's regulatory filings, and so forth. And that's that's what they do, and that's what they only focus on. The reality is, though, that everybody does, everybody can do that, and that's that's what we'll call publicly available information. And if that's all you rely on, then you can't have a unique insight. And the key thing about stock picking, if you want to be good over the long term, is you have to have insights that nobody else has. So the thing that I really drive home with practitioners as well as my students in the class is that you've got to come up with a proprietary insight, something that other people haven't figured out. And so it might be a proprietary study. It might be industry sources that you have that others don't. Now, one thing I want to make sure I'm clear, I'm not suggesting to go to the company itself and get inside information. That's illegal and unethical and moral. We don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So if you're researching McDonald's and you want to try to figure out, is the new McRib going to be something that really results in a lot of additional sales and upside surprise and earnings power, you wouldn't go talk to the CEO. Well, you could ask the CEO, but that shouldn't be your sole source. You would want to go out and maybe talk to individual store managers, maybe do a survey of customers. Maybe you go to the market where they've tested the McRib and see what's happening there. So that's really the key thing about if you want to be good at stock picking over the long term and generate what they call generate alpha, namely generate more of a return than you would if you just owned a passive investment. Um, you've got to come up with unique insights. But you mentioned like not going to the company, but would the company know that their stock is going to fall or rise or like the product is doing good or not? That's a good question. So there's, I guess there's a few different phases. Uh, companies will almost always give you a very, very optimistic outlook. Mm. In fact, overly optimistic outlook over the long term. Kind of the second phase is that companies uh, should be telling you, even in the near term, short term, um, what's happening, but sometimes they can't because if they're in what's called a quiet period, namely that they haven't released earnings yet and they know they're going to have a disappointment, um, they can't tell people. So you, can, so you can't get the information from the company during that time period. And I guess the third time period is, is this idea that I've seen management team time and time again tell people that there's not going to be any problem with the business and yet as short as a month later, they're having to report disappointing, uh, pre-announced disappointing results. I like to say that management will just drive the bus right off the cliff while they're in the bus with you. They, they just have very little uh, foresight going forward. It's not necessarily their fault. That's why I tell analysts and I tell my students, you can't rely solely on company management. They're overly optimistic and their crystal ball is rarely any better than what you could have. In fact, it's usually not as good as what you could have if you're out there talking to independent sources of information. So in your class, you always, always talk about Tesla. It sounds like that's one of your favorite uh, topics or stocks. And you always tell us that what drives the stock 
price is forward earning outlooks. Does Tesla have this forward earning outlooks that empower them to have this very, very high price to uh, earnings ratio and which and also they have a fairly high stock price, $500 or more, and they increase a lot over the past two years. Maybe tell us a little bit more about how this comes about. Yeah, so I, I talk about Tesla because students like to talk about it. But candidly, I, I don't think I'd ever invest in Tesla. At least I shouldn't say ever. I would not invest in Tesla right now because um, generally stocks fall into two categories. You either consider them as an, an investment, and an investment can be you know, six months, 12 months, hopefully at least 12 months, and it could be two years, three years, could be your retirement uh, investment for you know, 30 years you plan to hold it. Uh, the other type of transactions taking place in the stock market are speculators. So what I find is happening a lot with Tesla is there's a lot of speculators. People get in on a Monday because they think the stock's going up or down by Tuesday, and they're back out by Wednesday. But I don't view right now those who own it as long-term investors. I think there's a lot of speculation in the stock. With that said, I think the big debate is what is the long-term earnings growth of this company? And I think when they look at it very narrowly as, and this is the mistake I think analysts did back when the stock was at 150 and people were shorting it and saying there was no upside, is if you look at it very narrowly and you say, this is one company in a very competitive global auto industry and it's very small and it's going to struggle to do well, then the stock, you could argue, goes to zero. If on the other hand, you say they've got a brand new product that is going to continue to grow and more, and more importantly, and this is the part of the equation I think is just starting to be appreciated by the marketplace, if they start to put other automobile manufacturers out of business, and you can just go through and look at a list of the 20 largest automobile manufacturers in the world, if you look at the bottom, let's say three, four, five, six on that list, and just say to yourself, what if five years from now, those companies are all gone? They all either go bankrupt or they have to be merged into another company because Tesla keeps on growing fast and taking market share away from them. If that happens, then you could argue Tesla's got a lot more upside in the stock. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I think a lot of the trading right now is speculative short-term, but I think for those who are willing to look long-term, and, and you can make this argument that they ultimately dominate that electric car market, and it becomes, and they just own that category, uh, there's potentially a lot more upside. Right. Just a disclaimer for the listeners of uh, this podcast, we are not providing investment advisors. That's right. There's no investment <laughs> advice. No, just all uh, his uh, personal opinions. Uh, so, Professor, how does the stock market, and if it does, affect the common man? So a few things, you know, if, if you think about it, um, this whole point earlier about that the stock market brings together those who need capital, need cash. Like when Elon Musk wanted to start PayPal, um, he couldn't do it on, on hire all these people and do it all on his own, right? So what he did is he went to the stock market. He found a whole bunch of investors who had cash. Maybe they were sitting in a bank account. And they said, I want to give it to somebody who will use it well. And they gave it to Elon Musk through the stock exchange. And, um, and ultimately, he was able to do that. That mechanism of being able to take large pools of what we call capital, otherwise you can think of it as just cash, large pools of cash, and to be able to take that from people who have the cash and put it into the hands of people who are going to invest it wisely is really, really important to see your overall economy grow. And I would contend if you go and look at a lot of the, um, I guess, struggling or, or failed communist countries we've seen over the last century uh, that have been either anti-capitalism or really uh, um, uh, dissuaded, but dissuaded that, uh, that practice, you'll see that their uh, standard of living is lower than those countries where you have capitalism. And I would contend that you can't do things like build that factory or even build that hospital if you don't have the capital, and namely this exchange of capital that happens in the stock market. So in countries that have well-developed capital markets, namely good stock exchanges, bond exchanges, and so forth, have good markets, they 
tend to have a higher standard of living because it allows this transfer of wealth from these people from that or maybe transfer of uh, capital from those who pools of capital have it to those who are going to actually deploy it and use it wisely. So stock market is also good for businesses because it helps grow the economy in general as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you just think in your mind of some countries that maybe are struggling to develop and haven't really uh, maybe kept up over the last century with uh, some of the more developing countries in the world. And very often what you'll see is they have a very uh, basic capital markets or maybe no capital markets. So there's no ability to exchange. And so if somebody, let's say poorer countries or less developed countries, wants to build a factory, there's nowhere to get the capital. So the factory doesn't get built. The employees don't get to get the better jobs. And so they can't ultimately get the medical care that would ultimately justify building a hospital. And so there's a direct relationship there. So nowadays, a lot of brokers, they lower their fees. Uh, Students can just download the app, put their social security number in, and they can start trading stocks. Do you recommend students doing this? Do you think that's a good way to kind of manage their wealth? Yeah, so the question about trading stocks, I think it's great to learn how to trade stocks. And so one of the things I encourage my students to do in classes, as you know, Hugo, is to go to do some type of stock simulation. There's a lot out there. I use one on Investopedia, but there's plenty out there. And you go and you can start to basically trade stock. And it's, it's almost like uh, fantasy football, right? You're doing it on paper uh, and there's very little risk. If you decide you do want to try it, and I do encourage students, if you've got that you're willing to invest, then yeah, put in the stock market, put it into a stock or maybe an ETF, exchange traded fund. So you start to kind of feel for what it's about. I mean, if it's $500 and let's say worst case that you look at a conservative investment, uh, worst case, you're down 10%. So you're down what, $50. That's a small price to pay for a lesson to say, wow, I didn't see that coming. So there is definitely some benefit to it. The, The big caveat I'll throw out there though, is that you should never be investing unless you've saved. And first thing you want to do is pay off all your high interest credit cards, if you've got any. Then you want to make sure you have some savings for emergency funds, for a rainy day, for anything you might be planning to do, like, you know, you're going to buy a house or you're going to buy a car or something you need. And then only after you've got that savings should you be investing. So it's just critically important because I hear people all the time saying, oh, I want to go buy stocks. I want to be in the stock market. Meanwhile, they've got a 20% interest credit card that's got $2,000 or $5,000 on it. It's like, no, 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 it's, it's not good to go out and be investing until you've gotten rid of your high interest uh, loans and credit cards. Say a person is earning a monthly salary. They don't have a business where they have rolling money. How would investing work for them? There's a higher chance of losing everything that you invest in, right? Well, so, yeah. So, so the question about, you know, what could you lose? Um, the, you know, there's all kinds of studies out there that will show you kind of the volatility, what we call volatility around a stock or the stock market. What we're trying to find out is how much would you lose in a typical year. And uh, other than going back to the Great Recession, you typically don't see people losing large amounts of everything. The, what you typically see is if someone's willing to invest over the long term, you'll see fluctuations where your investment might go up or down 10% in a given year. Now, there's some years where we've seen as much as 20%, 25 That's a bit of an, an anomaly. But the point is that you don't. I, I want to make sure I remove the fear that investing in the stock market results in stocks going to zero. It mm-hmm. can happen, but if you're diversified, you tend to see, like I said, maybe let's say about a 10% fluctuation from one year to the next. Over the long term, the stock market has been proven to be the best long-term investment of the major asset classes out there. So if you can invest in stocks and bonds, cash, commodities, other alternatives, that investing in stocks over the long term, 10, 20, 30 years, you tend to get the best returns. Besides the equity research stock picking class, you also teach this financial literacy class. I haven't taken it. Just tell me about it. So financial literacy is uh, is kind of what you would expect it to be. It's this idea of understanding finances. And one thing that um, I've been, I guess, a little bit surprised by, and the students who take my class are telling me they're, they're surprised by, is that how we have students 
in college, who brilliant students here, that get all the way to the end of their senior year, and many of whom, the ones that I work with, are finance majors, that have never been taught how to do things like savings and how to think about their credit score, um, how to think about paying off debt. And these are all the individual personal finance things that we need to do to have a budget, you know, something as basic as having a budget and living within it. And so there are programs out there called financial literacy and to help improve financial literacy. And what it basically does is it helps you uh, to do all these things. And what I set out to do here a few years ago was to bring a financial literacy program here to DePaul where we could implement it in a 10-week quarter where the students spend half the quarter learning the program and then the other half of the quarter, they're out there teaching it to community-based organization leaders here in Chicago. In fact, we just kicked off the course. We're going to be teaching some of these community-based leaders here on Monday in class. So there's about 10 people who, who work with, for the most part, limited resource communities here in Chicago. And what they want to do is be able to teach financial literacy to their clients, their members of their organizations. So we're going to, they're going to come. We're going to teach them how to do that. And the idea is that the better that you are in being financially literate, the less likely you're going to be in poverty, the less likely that you're going to be uh, a victim of these um, high credit cards, and, and you're basically going to be able to improve your overall uh, financial stability and hopefully uh, just your overall lifestyle. And can anyone take this class at DePaul or specifically finance students? As of right now, it is a finance class, so I believe it's only available for finance students. But we are in the process right now of trying to make it an interdisciplinary course for the entire College of Business. And so our hope is when we offer it again in the fall, that it would be available to any student in the College of Business. Yeah, because financial literacy is something that every student, I feel, needs. Because, mm. you know, we're starting out kind of like getting into the adulthood that, you know, that we have to prepare for. And I think investing and learning about budgeting and saving is very, very crucial to success and being rich, I guess, in the future. Absolutely. And in fact, that's one thing I, I find interesting about the course is that you know, we do it with the thought, primary goal with students will learn this content so they can ultimately go out and teach these limited resource community leaders how to help their people with financial literacy. But what I hear over and over again during the course and after the course, students will tell me, they'll say like, wow, I didn't realize how much this changed the way I think about spending and about my credit score and budgeting and so forth. So yeah, absolutely, it helps the students as well. So, Professor, you worked at Wall Street, right? What was it like working there? What would be your recommendation to students who would you know, possibly want to work there as well? Yeah, so that's a great question. So uh, I guess a few thoughts. So I, I worked um, in New York. I was here back in Chicago for a while and also in London. And, and I would say a few things if you're going to work uh, on Wall Street. And Wall Street is just generically used as the, the term of the financial markets. Sometimes people are referring specifically to Manhattan, but it can be uh, you know, financial markets uh, in general. And if you want to work in that field, just be aware that there is a wide array of options. It can range anything from being an investment banker for one of the top firms in, let's say, New York, which is kind of the capital universe for uh, a lot of the larger um, money management firms. Or it could be working in a back office in a compliance role in somewhere in northern Wisconsin. So it's, there's a huge array of jobs available out there. I think if you decide that you want to – I worked on my um, – I earned a master's degree in finance – and when I was going to graduate, I said, I really want to go to New York and try to get a job there because if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere, right, <laughs> uh, as the song goes. And I was actually kind of thinking that. I thought, let me go out there. And so I went out there. What I realized, and the reason why I decided to in fact, kind of retire after 14 years was it's a very high-paced job if you're going to work in New York. It's uh, at least for the firm I was at. 
it's typically going to be 10, 11, sometimes 12 hour days, six day weeks. And that's okay if you're, you know, 28 or 32 years old and so forth. But for me, as I was getting older and my kids were getting, starting to get to the age where um, I really want to spend more time with them, you have to kind of reflect, do I want to be in this pace, this fast pace? And so I, I think what I'm trying to get at is that if you decide you want to work for one of those really large firms and you strive to do that, be aware that it's very fast paced and they don't let you kind of decide to kind of step back. And I, I like to tell um, former students or people who think about getting into this industry, like for example, in New York, or they've got a job interview there. I say that it's like playing shortstop for, in this case, I would say the, the uh, New York Yankees, but here in Chicago, say for the Chicago Cubs, that you can't decide after playing shortstop and working really hard that you're suddenly going to just kind of start to play a B game, right? You can't do that. You are on a professional team. And it's the same kind of thing there. If you're going to work for a large global firm, you've got to be playing your A game all the time. And if you decide, no, I actually kind of want to step back a little bit, have a more of a balance in life. I want to be, in my case, a better father, a better husband, and so forth. That's great, but you can't keep that job then at the same time. So then you kind of make a decision. Well, and that's ultimately what I decided to do when I, when I thought, it's probably time to just kind of step back, figure out something else in life. It's, a, I guess, a longer way of saying the firm that you work with will probably dictate the amount of work-life balance you have. And you might want to keep that in mind before you decide which firm to work for. So is it possible for someone graduated with a bachelor's degree to immediately get a job in New York? Or will it probably, you know, take time? It depends. A lot of the New York firms want to hire students right out of undergrad. So, you know, you don't want to necessarily, if you really want to work in New York or, you know, so Chicago is the third or fourth largest financial center here in the country. The first being New York and the second is Boston, especially in terms of the buy side, the asset management. The, the, the third and fourth are kind of tied would be San Francisco and Chicago. And so if you want to go work in New York and you say, look, I really want to be, the, once again, kind of the center of the universe of that particular profession. You want to do it right away, but just understand that for a lot of the firms, for every one opening, there's anywhere between 10 and 100 resumes, qualified resumes coming in for the position. So it's incredibly competitive. With that said, uh, I have a former student that was in my stock picking class who right now works for J.P. Morgan in New York. Uh, I've got another one who works for Barclays in New York. And so, um, and then two others that actually, one that now just was working in New York, he just went transferred to London, and another one works out in San Francisco. So um, it is possible to get a job in that field in New York, you know, one of the large financial centers uh, like Chicago, uh, if you really um, put your mind to it. I like how different professors rank Chicago at different places among the financial centers. I've talked to professors who claim Chicago is the second biggest financial center in the U.S. and you said third or fourth. I, I think it kind of depends on what you did. Yeah, so what, I, what I'm looking at are the assets under management. Uh, I also know when I was an analyst, my company would take me around to uh, our clients. And during a typical year, I might do what we call that marketing. I mean, I'd be out there talking to my clients, talking about my stocks and why I thought they'd go up or down. And so they would, I would be out marketing in New York probably, let's say, 10 days a year, Boston, four to five days a year. And then Chicago slash Milwaukee, because there's a reasonable amount of money management there, maybe one or two days a year. And same thing with San Francisco, maybe one or two days a year. So, And I think that's still pretty much the case. I mean, so when you just think about but that's once again, money management. If you talk about investment banking, it could be different. If you're talking about fixed income, it could be different. So that you know that that what I was talking about is equities. You know, management right. of equities. Equity analysts, you covered railway stocks. That that kind of sounds like it's industry that's far away from me. Can you give us an overview of this industry? Is is this does this still exist or what is the outlook <laughs> out there? Yeah, sure. So uh, so I think Hugo was asking about what was it like covering my sector, which was freight transportation stocks. So I covered 
railroads, mostly freight railroads, trucking companies, the parcel companies like FedEx, UPS, container shipping companies. I was fell into the role, which is fairly typical, right? When you graduate and you go and apply for a job on Wall Street in this in equity research, you'll basically be assigned to somebody to work for somebody and you're given their sector. And after I did it for about a year, I thought, oh, this is a really boring industry. I want to go do internet or mobile phones or something like that. But I wound up getting a job offer to go to another firm to to cover freight transportation stocks. And I did it. Anyway, and then ultimately I worked there for a few years. I got hired away by another firm. I did it there for a few years. and got hired away by, to Morgan Stanley, where, where I spent about 10 years. And my point is I got hired away because, I think, because they valued my what I was doing. And over the long run, what I realized is it's not the sector you cover, but it's how you do the job. And I really enjoyed the job. Uh, and I enjoyed covering that sector. Uh, to answer your question, yeah, it's uh, the um, freight transportation is about 10% of, uh, of our overall U.S. economy. People don't typically think that, uh, but it's a big part of our economy. They basically, look at everything in this room, look at everything around you. Uh, for the most part, it probably got here somehow on either a truck or a railroad or a parcel company. And so they are a big part of our overall economy. And so I, I really enjoyed it. It also gave me a chance to get into all these other businesses. So we would go visit an auto plant or we would go into a big retailer, uh, their, their warehouse facilities, and see all these conveyor belts and sortation systems. And so it gives you a, a real good feel for what's going on in the economy. So it's a long way of saying, yes, that sector, is the, including the freight railroads, is alive and well, and, uh, and it's a big part of our economy. So, Professor, you are probably one of the top-ranked equity research analysts out there. How did you come to teaching at DePaul? Yeah. Well, first, thanks. I'm, thank you for giving me the accolades. I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but thank you. I, when uh, when I was um, deciding to kind of retire, slow down, I uh, wrote the book that you referenced earlier, and then I started my consulting business, and I was doing that. And then a friend, Joe Silich, who's also a professor here and fantastic guy, who also works for Morgan Stanley, he uh, recommended that I try to be a, teach as an adjunct professor. Dr. Brewer was very kind to uh, ultimately um, uh, ask me if I'd be interested in doing that. I, I, I did that. The student evaluation seemed to be pretty positive. And so over time, um, Dr. Brewer asked, would you be interested in doing this full-time? And I, I was interested in doing that. So I uh, started uh, teaching full-time. And what classes do you teach at DePaul? So I teach principles of stock picking, which is Finance 336. And I hesitate a little bit because we're going to potentially have it renamed to equity research, which is more typical at most universities. And so in the future, if someone's listening to this, they may not find it in the course catalog. It'll be equity research. But it's Finance 336. And the other one is financial literacy, which right now is Finance 398. It's called Special Topics because it's a new course we've developed. And uh, if it works well, we'll have that in the future, uh, which will, might be an ICS, this interdisciplinary course. Um, we don't have a number yet. Or it could potentially be a finance course with a different number. If you are an equity research analyst, if you call the company management and tell them, I don't like your recipe, do you have a higher chance to make them to change the recipe for you? So I think the question is, as, as a, if I can rephrase it, is it's, as an analyst, and typically companies like, I'm just going to use McDonald's because it's headquartered here just a few, I'll say a few blocks away just over here in the West Loop. It's a global company. So if I, and the analyst you're referencing covered McDonald's, and she's based here in Chicago with one of the large sell-side firms here in Chicago. And so if you're a sell-side analyst and you are analyzing a company, you have every reason and right to tell management if you think they've got a bad strategic path that they're going down. And you'll tell them why, and you'll tell your investors why. You'll say, look, I think that changing the recipe on the McRib was a, is a bad idea, and here's why. But you're kind of crossing a line when you start to then get upset over the, with the company over something personal. So within this past week, uh, Sonos has decided that they're going to stop uh, supporting any of the equipment that they sold prior to 2015. Well, I outfitted my entire house with Sonos equipment, including the wiring and everything. 
And I'm like, what? So, um, well, it turns out that I wasn't the only one, and they've had such a backlash here over the last few days here. They've, the CEO came out with an apology yesterday and just said, sorry, sorry, sorry. We're going to support all this mistake on our part. Now, if I, as an analyst, had called the company and said, hey, I did this to my house, and I fitted, I outfitted my house with all your equipment, and I'm upset, that would be inappropriate. But if I called management, I said, look, I think you're going to lose a lot of your original customers that are you know, your diehard customers. They're going to go find other options in the future. Uh, and this is going to hurt your stock price. That would be appropriate. What are some common mistakes that analysts, researchers do you know, in the industry? Yeah, I think the biggest mistake that analysts make is that they think by consuming all the public information about this company, for example, reading the news, reading the company filings, listening to the company conference calls, they think by doing that, they're going to have a competitive edge on, on whether or not they should buy or sell the stock. And the reality is for any given stock out there, it could be Tesla, McDonald's, Harley-Davidson, any one of these stocks out there, there's at least 15 and maybe as many as 40 professional sell-side analysts that are covering that stock. Namely, they're doing all that work and they're publishing reports on it. And then there's anywhere from another 100 to potentially 10,000 professional investors, professional, meaning they're full-time people working 40, 50, 60, sometimes 70-hour weeks focused on those particular stocks. So for somebody to think that I'm going to just go and read McDonald's quarterly filings and listen to our conference calls and read the news flow on them, and then I'm going to be a better stock picker on McDonald's than somebody else is, is, is a mistake. It's, it's a misnomer, and, and you're kidding yourself. So what I tell professionals in the coaching side I do, as well as my students in class, is that you've got to find a competitive edge if you're going to be picking stocks. If you're not going to be, if you don't have a competitive edge, you probably should invest passively. We really haven't talked about passive investment. Passive investments is where you can get exposure to the stock market, but you'll go out and you'll buy something like an exchange-traded fund, so these are called ETFs, where they'll have a basket of stocks. So one of the most popular ETFs is the S&P 500. So if you buy one share of one ETF, you've just got exposure to all 500 stocks in the S&P 500. You own a little tiny bit of every one of those 500 stocks. You could buy 100 shares of that ETF or 1,000 shares of the ETF and get more and more exposure, but that's a passive way, and by buying it that way, there's a very, very low fee. Uh, whereas if you are out, well, so versus buying a mutual fund where it's managed by somebody, that could be a strategy, but that gets a little more expensive. And then the other strategies, I'm just going to go buy Tesla on my own. The problem with that is that, number one, I don't know, I don't have any real good research as an individual. But second, you typically don't want to own just one stock or two stocks. You typically want to have a portfolio of at least 15, and usually I'd like to say about 30 stocks to diversify your risk. So that way, if the stock market does go down, or worse yet, if one particular company has trouble, that you're not seeing your entire investment go to zero, but instead maybe it only goes down 10%. On that note, how does the common man start to invest when they don't know anything about? Yeah, so if you want to invest, I'd say first and foremost, once again, make sure you have no high interest debt. If you've got debt with interest rates more than, at least at this point in time, let's say higher than 7 or 8%, you want to pay that off before you go investing. Next thing you want to do is make sure you have some savings. Uh, you know, $500,000 worth of savings for an emergency fund, maybe a little bit more. And then if you've got all that taken care of, then yes, you could consider investing. Uh, I would first say learn about investing, and one of the best places to do that at is Investopedia. When you go to Investopedia and you uh, sign up, uh, it'll ask you, do you want to sign up for various newsletters that they have? I would encourage you to sign up for all of them, and then you can always unsubscribe. And uh, there's things like term of the day or how to invest in mutual funds or how to invest in ETFs, and you can learn about all those things. And the other thing you can do is they have these simulation, what they call games, that are these simulations that are run by all different individuals. I do one for my class. And you can go in and you can start to simulate by saying, I'm going to buy McDonald's. I'm going to short Tesla. I'm going to do this 
on what we call a paper portfolio. So if you do end up losing money, it's just on paper and it's not, you're actually losing money. If you're comfortable doing that, then you can go out and open a brokerage account. And there, as Hugo referenced, there are brokerage accounts that uh, have zero cost to open up, zero cost for uh, trading or very low cost for trading. If you, you shouldn't be paying much for trading. Um, and, uh, and then you can start and buy and sell stocks and see what it's, uh, what it's like. And uh, you just want to be careful, once again, not to invest any money that you need for something. If you say, I need to buy a car and I need $2,000 for that that I'm going to buy in three months, you cannot take that and invest in the stock market because it might go down 10 or 20%. And all of a sudden, you don't have your $2,000. I would recommend start with Investopedia and learn from it there. See if you like their simulation or any other simulation. And if you like that, then actually go out and invest. So it's kind of safe to say that 2019 was a kind of good year for equities. Uh, what are the factors that fuel this uh, rally, this bull market? And do, do you see those factors stay for the next year or this coming year? Yeah, so Hugo's asking me basically to, to forecast the direction of the stock market. Um. And, I, and I will tell my students, I can't do that any better than anybody else in terms of the overall stock market. But one thing that's important to understand is that stock prices, typically the thing that influences stock prices the most are the long-term direction of corporate earnings growth. And corporate earnings growth are going to be the earnings growth of a McDonald's or a John Deere or Caterpillar or uh, Harley-Davidson. And so the question is, well, what drives their corporate earnings growth? Well, it's going to be the overall economy, right? It's going to be things to do with how is the, well, the economy doing, how it's consumer confidence like, what's going on with interest rates, what's going on with global trade. And so what happened in 2019 was that investors were optimistic, became more and more optimistic about the corporate earnings growth in 2019. But more importantly, the stock market tends to forecast the future, anywhere from it could be a day forward, it could be as much as a year forward. And so I would contend that at least in the second half of 2019, a big reason why the stock market was going up is people were optimistic about corporate earnings growth in 2020, which apparently is the current view. And, it, and so if that remains, the stocks probably will stay where they are, go even higher. Uh, but if concerns start to, there start to be new concerns about a slowing economy, then you, you probably won't see the stocks go up anymore. What is your recommendation to students who are probably on the fence about entering this industry? Yeah, it's a great question. So there's a, it's kind of a double-edged sword for the, well, I'm, I'm going to broadly say the investment management industry right now. On the one hand, there is a big problem for professionals in this industry, namely the industry shrinking, because we're seeing more and more investors shift from active management. So in the example earlier, these uh, investors would go to like a, a Northern Trust or uh, Citadel, and they have active managers, people sitting in desks at, in these buildings, they're actually managing the money. Um, that's a costly uh, proposition. And so what's happening is more and more of those assets are leaving those types of firms, not those specific firms, those types of firms, and they're going to passive uh, indexed funds or passive ETFs. And when that happens, you don't need the people, right? They're just computers, basically. They're in some kind of server farm that are running uh, those portfolios. And so the industry is shrinking. And so that's the downside. And, and, and students thinking about getting this industry, they need to be a little cautious about that. With that said, this is someone, something that someone told me back in the early 90s when I was about ready to graduate in the midst of a recession. They said there's always openings for entry-level positions. And as I, I think I referenced earlier, I know of at least four, I guess now five students in my class that are working in the industry that have all got, gone into the industry over the last two, three years. So despite the fact the industry is shrinking, there are openings out there for students that are determined to get into this industry. That's it for today's episode. Thank you, Professor Valentine and Hugo for your time. Watch out for our next episode with more stuff you should know about finance. I'm Demira Menezes, and I'll catch you next time.